0: It's just different. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Instant Replay Podcast. As always, I am your host, Dominic Sharoski, and we have a full, I mean a full stacked lineup for everything that we need to talk about today. So much is going on um, across basically everywhere in sports, whether it's golf, MLB. We're going to talk a little bit of WNBA today. Obviously, we'll talk about the Logan Paul, or I'm sorry, not Logan, Jake Paul and Tyron Woodley fight. But the biggest news that came across today that we absolutely have to talk about is in the NFL. And that is where we are going to start off. Um, It's funny because I was literally getting ready to talk about how All of the other quarterback competitions in the league seem to have come to an end, right? Like, we pretty much know who's going to be the starter everywhere. And really, the only place that we had a question about was New England. You know, we talked about that on the last pod. And New England gave us our answer today when the news broke that Cam Newton was released by the New England Patriots. Obviously, this was shocking. We knew teams were going to be cutting a lot of players today. We knew a lot of guys were going to be waived, released, however you want to say it, um, because today is the deadline uh, for the 53-man roster. Teams have to have their their rosters down to 53 uh, by 4 o'clock today, so that will be in about another 30 minutes. But this was kind of shocking news. Um, Just because I don't think... Like, I don't think anyone thought that like, okay, even if they, th- they give Mac Jones the job, they're not like, it's like, okay, well then you just have Cam as your backup. Now, here's what I will say. Cause there's two things that I think there's two lines of thinking here. When I first heard this, after I had my initial shock out of the way of like, oh my God, they just released Cam Newton. Um, It was, okay, Mac Jones is going to be the starter. Why did they release Cam? One of two things. This was either the Patriots looking out for Cam and knowing that, hey, Cam, we know you want to be a starter. By releasing you, you have your pick of the litter. You have every opportunity to maybe go out there and have free reign so that way we don't have to trade you. You don't have to by releasing you. You can go out there, be a free agent. Your contract is already... uh, Most of it, I think, like, most of it was fully guaranteed or something like that or whatever. Um, So he's still going to get his money from the Patriots, which is pretty good. But I think there is that line of thinking that maybe this was something that Cam might have asked for, you know, where it was like the Patriots might have come to him and said, hey, we're going to start Mac. We know you want the opportunity to be a starter and being a backup isn't really what you are looking for to do. Um, how would you like to go about this? Would you like for us to release you? So that way you can go out and still try and attain that goal of being a starter. Um, So there's that line of thinking. And then there's also the line of thinking that this is something that the Patriots did um, to benefit Mac Jones. And I think I understand that line of, I think that's the line of reasoning that I'm more so aligned with is because If Mac Jones is going to be their starter, like once they kind of realized, okay, yeah, Mac Jones is going to be our guy. I understand why you probably wouldn't want that pressure of having a former MVP behind him. Basically just kind of waiting for him to have his rookie struggles. Because the moment he does, people are going to be like, okay, Cam Newton was supposed to be the starter this year anyway. Yes, he's the young guy. And granted, everywhere is different, but the Patriots, for all intents and purposes, the Patriots are a team that I think everyone believes will be competing for a playoff spot this year. Um I mean, think about it. They went, what, seven and nine or nine and seven, something like that, last year with Cam missing games due to COVID. Um, a team that was just completely devoid of offensive weapons, and they still we're basically a 500 team with that roster, which really it, they had no business being that good. I think if anyone else was coaching the Patriots last year, that team would have won less than five games. Um, So I can see why though, where they're like, you know, and that's part of it is that you don't want to stunt your rookie quarterback's growth. Right. And I, I mentioned how, uh, With Eli Manning and Kurt Warner, how Kurt Warner, you know, early on with the Giants, Eli Manning struggled and they were thinking about bringing in Kurt and Kurt said, no, leave him in there, let him learn, let him take his lumps because it's the only way he's going to get better. Starting the rookie and then pulling him, I do think damages his confidence and stunts a quarterback's growth. And so I, I can see why they would have wanted to get rid of cam because now no one's going to be like, no one's going to be clamoring for Brian Hoyer to be the starter by getting rid of cam. You eliminate that distraction and you nip everything right in the bud. um, here before the season even starts that way, Mac Jones can go out there with a clear mind and not have to worry about If I have, you know, a couple mistakes here, uh, I'm going to lose the starting job. It's his job. This is officially the Mac Jones era of New England. Um, And, you know, yes, everyone could probably say, you know, well, you could have kept Cam around, you know, to maybe help mentor him and things like that. But it's like Brian Hoyer can do that. And I would probably say Brian Hoyer being the fact that he's been a backup quarterback for the majority of his career. He's probably better suited to be that mentor. You know, they always talk about how like backup quarterbacks go on to be very good coaches, coordinators, and things like that. Mentors, because they've, that's kind of the role that they've always been in as a backup. You know, you do a lot of the homework for the starting quarterback. Um, you kind of have to build that those relationships. You do a lot of stuff that coaches would do. Right. So, I see why Brian Hoyer probably fits that mold better because, like I said, Brian Hoyer isn't going to push for a starting job in New England. Cam Newton would have. Now, that also brings up the question, what's next for Cam? Because I love Cam, and I think that Cam, if healthy, and with the right pieces around him, can still be Not an elite level quarterback, but I still think he can be um, a tier three, you know, above average starting quarterback in the NFL. Obviously, he's still uh, what he can do with his legs brings an added dimension to any offense that he's going to be a part of. But it becomes a question now. Where is Cam going to go? What's next for Cam? Because I'll be completely honest, I don't know if cam's ever going to get the chance to be a starter in the nfl ever again like you know this is one of the things that I, i i spoke about not too long ago the nfl is in such a great place right now when it comes to young rookie talent at the quarterback position and even not just rookies like just guys that are under 25 years old like look around the league and see some of these guys who i mean it feels like every other team has a plan has a quarterback that is set to be the future of the franchise right you look cleveland has baker mayfield miami has tua um jacksonville has trevor lawrence uh los angeles has justin herbert like you just go down the list baltimore lamar jackson buffalo has josh allen you know like the patriots have Mac Jones, the Bears have Justin Fields. The list just goes on and on. Cincinnati with Joe Burrow, like it keeps going on and on and on, and it just feels like so many teams have a set answer at the quarterback position, where it might be tough for Cam to get an opportunity to be a starting guy this year, to be to be the starter this year. Next year, I think there will be some opportunities that will open up. I'll probably actually have an article coming out uh, later this week about a couple of destinations that I could see Cam uh, maybe trying to reclaim a starting position. One thing that I have seen a lot of people jump out on very quickly is um, Cam possibly going to Dallas to be the backup, which I think makes sense because the Dallas Cowboys... You know, they released Ben DiNucci um, and another one of the quarterbacks that they had on their roster. So right now their backup quarterback is Cooper Rush. I don't think that he's the answer. I don't think you feel super comfortable um, with Cooper being your backup. If you can get Cam in there, who can kind of emulate some of what Dak Prescott does a little bit better than Cooper Rush can, I think you should do it. But is Cam going to accept the fact that he's a backup? And I think, like I said, I'm a believer in Cam. I still think that he can be a starter, you know, not a great one, but I think I still think he can be a good starter, an above average starter in the NFL. But is he ready to kind of accept that his best role is probably as a backup quarterback at this point? You know, like this is kind of what Carmelo Anthony struggled with, specifically when he was in Oklahoma City, uh, when they had Russell Westbrook and Paul George there. And, you know, I I remember seeing Melo talk in one of his uh, press conferences when he first got to Oklahoma and he was like, I'm not coming off the bench, you know, he was like, I'm not a bench player, I'm not coming off the bench. And it took him a while and it ended up costing him where, you know, he was kind of out of the league basically for a year because he just wouldn't accept the fact that you're not like, yes, we love you, Carmelo, but you're not Melo anymore. This is not the Melo who was in New York and who was in Denver. You know, things change. And right now, your best role to a team is as a backup, as a reserve, as a guy who's coming off the bench. And I think Cam is getting to that point where he's going to have to come to grips with that. And I don't know. Cam is someone who has a lot of pride, who has a big personality. And I don't know if he'll be able to put his pride aside to accept that role. But yeah, so it seems like, though, that Dallas could be a spot where maybe he goes there. But it's um it's rough. It's going to be rough for Cam. Like I said, I, I do believe that there are a few locations or a few job opportunities that will open up for cam, uh, once, once we get to next year. Um, but as of right now, we'll see, we'll see. But that was the the real big news that came across, uh, today. Um, a couple other things in the NFL cause we got a lot to talk about. So I don't want to spend too much time, um, on any one area. Uh, A little bit of bad news for the Baltimore Ravens, Uh, starting running back J.K. Dobbins was carted off of the field on uh, their last preseason game and unfortunately uh, was confirmed he does have a uh, torn ACL. He will be done for the season. I think this hurts, and I think this hurts the Ravens a lot. I understand Lamar Jackson is also a big part of their run game, and Gus Edwards is a very, very very good uh backup running back to have he he's definitely someone who can shoulder the load but i i i think jk dobbins is one of those guys where he was going to take that leap um and really insert himself in you know that conversation of i'm one of the 10 best running backs in the league you know kind of how like nick chubb has kind of you know taking huge step steps forward and it feels like in just two years Nick Chubb has shown that he's one of maybe the five or ten best running backs in the league it felt like this was a year J.K. Dobbins at least for me um it felt like this was a year where J.K. Dobbins might make that that big jump um so to see him have to go down uh that's definitely going to be rough and also you know if you're if you're in Baltimore right now, you know, we've obviously dealt we've obviously spoken spoke at length about the Indianapolis Colts and how they've had their injury struggles who by the way they've they've had a little bit of a covid outbreak. Carson Wentz tested positive for covid. Um where I believe was a close contact, but basically Carson Wentz is going to be away from the team for 5 days. Um but even though we've talked a lot about the Colts, I feel like we haven't spoken too much about some of the things that the Ravens have going on, you know, like they're going to be without one of their top wide receiver acquisitions, uh, maybe for the first week or two, you know, obviously losing J.K. Dobbins. They kind of swung for the fences and free agency to get a bunch of uh, premier or just guys who are a little bit better to beef up their wide receiver room couldn't really do that basically had to settle for Sammy Watkins who is a good receiver but he's not um I I feel the same way I feel about Sammy Watkins the same way I feel about like Hollywood Brown good receivers neither one of them are your go-to options if those two guys if one of those guys is your go-to options um your passing game is probably going to struggle. And so now losing a big piece in what this offense is built around, like let's just be honest, the Ravens are built around the fact that we're going to run the ball very well. Our defense is going to blitz a lot because we have corners that are great in man coverage. We can go and tell our guys, you know, we can tell, you know, Jimmy Smith and we can tell, um, Marcus Peters, hey, lace him up. Stick to your guy, because we're gonna only have four guys back there in the secondary, and we're sending six or seven almost every other play. You know they they blitz well and they blitz well because they cover well, specifically in man coverage. But will the Ravens, especially now with J.K. Dobbins being out? They won't, like, will they still be able to play that, you know, keep away type game? Will they still be able to play that ball control offense that we've seen them uh, like to run? I mean, hell, this team, what, like two years ago uh, broke the record for most rushing yards in a single season. So losing J.K. Dobbins is a really big piece. It's a really big loss for this team. It'll be interesting to see uh, how they recover from it moving forward. Um, obviously wishing J.K. Dobbins a speedy recovery. Um, and I'm, I have no doubt that he'll be ready to go for uh, next season. But losing him is big. And I have to say, I feel like this is Cleveland's division to lose. I really do. Especially after the performance that we saw from the Cleveland Browns in their last preseason game, where basically we got to see some of the starters play. And Baker Mayfield looked sharp. Baker Mayfield looked good. He looked really good, man. Like, Cleveland, don't sleep on Cleveland this year, man. Don't do it. I mean, granted, like I said, I'm 24 years old. For the majority of my lifetime, the Browns have been a joke. I look at this team now, and this is the first time I think I ever looked at the Cleveland Browns and legitimately thought they're a better team than us. Us obviously being the Pittsburgh Steelers because I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, but... This is the first time in a very, like I said, in my lifetime where I sat back and looked at the Cleveland Browns and I legitimately thought like, no, they're a better team than we are. So, and then obviously the addition, you know, getting Odell Beckham Jr. Back who, if you're one of those people who think that, Oh, Baker Mayfield in this offense was better without Odell. You and I are just never going to see eye to eye (laughs) on a lot of things when it comes to football. Um, Baker Mayfield got better because the season went along and he became more comfortable in an offense that he didn't really have a training camp to learn. He had a new head coach in a COVID off season where he couldn't really meet with his players, couldn't really meet with the coaches, didn't really have a training camp to help install the offense and really get to know it. It was a lot of learning on the fly. And as the season went on, Baker became more comfortable with it. Either way, man, they look really good now. You get Odell Beckham Jr. back. Nick Chubb is running the ball. You got Kareem Hunt there. Jarvis Landry still there. I mean, Cleveland is stacked. Cleveland is absolutely stacked. And I think the, every other team in the AFC North needs to be put on notice. Uh, it seems like the Browns are the kings of this division right now. We'll see how it plays out for the rest of the season, but as of right now, this is Cleveland's division to lose. Um, you know, with Pittsburgh, we still have to see what that offensive line is going to look like. That's really the only thing that we have to question about the Steelers. We know they have talent. Najee Harris, I think he's going to be a good running back, right? Like he, to me, is one of the guys. You spend a first round, you spend a first rounder on a running back he obviously has some generational type talent. He's obviously something special. That's what I believe Najee Harris is. Um, And then you still have, you know, Juju Smith-Schuster, Deontay Johnson, um, Chase Claypool. You still have James Washington, Uh, Pat, Pat Friermuth looked very good um, in that one preseason game. uh, Not too long ago. Um, Not this, the, the, from two weeks ago. So, Obviously, the offense is there. Ben, his arm looked pretty good in that preseason game as well. Um, We'll see how that translates to the regular season moving forward. But if this offensive line in Pittsburgh can hold up and be better than they were last year, I think the Steelers are definitely going to be in a spot to contend. But like I said, this is the Browns division to lose. and. It's not a. They, well, you know what? I'll say this. They do have pressure on them for the first time, which is going to be interesting. You know, like now, you know, there's an expectation that you guys are going to be good. Teams are looking at you and they're circling that date. How will they handle that pressure? We'll see. But like I said, the Browns right now are the cream of the crop when it comes to the AFC North. And in all honesty, they're one of the best teams in the AFC. I mean,. If you're asking me personally, they're probably they're probably the third best team in this conference. If I'm if I if I have to sit back and be honest with myself, they're probably the third best team in this conference behind, in my opinion, the Chiefs and the Colts. So we'll see what happens there. But like I said, I don't want to spend too much time just on the NFL because there's a lot of other things that we have to get into uh, real quick. Let's talk a little bit of golf, a little bit of golf. So obviously, you had Bryson DeChambeau and Cantlay's um, playoff, and you know. It, so here's what I will say: I'm not someone who watches golf. It's not super fun for me. It's a pretty boring sport. It is fun to play. I enjoy it. You know, I go to Top Golf. I get my swing get a couple swings in and feel good about myself, maybe beat some of my friends in some games. Sometimes I lose. It depends on who I'm playing with. Um, <laughs> but for the most part, golf isn't something that I've paid too much close attention to. However, there is nothing like, I mean, and you know what? I won't say there's nothing like it, but the sudden death aspect that we get for certain sports is so great like in soccer when the score is tied and you go to penalty kicks and it's like oh my goodness like the nerves everything is there right um you get that same feeling in golf when you get to playoff shots when every, when when scores are tied and it's now okay one hole right here who's going to shoot it better like that is so nerve-wracking and i'll be honest cantlay was incredible hit phenomenal putts and i feel like everyone was praising him because he absolutely like he did his thing right i said his putt game was incredible the other day However. I believe this match ended up having, I believe there were five playoff shots, but while everyone is praising Cantley, I'm sorry, because I I have to be Mr. Negative, I have to be Negative Nancy here. Why are we not talking about how Bryson DeChambeau completely choked? Bryson DeChambeau had a chance multiple times. At the end of regulation on the 18th hole, he had an opportunity to put this uh, to put this tournament away. Missed a putt from about 56 feet out, I believe. Which granted, it's a long putt, right? That's not an easy putt to make. But he's also a professional. He's Bryson DeChambeau. This is what you're supposed to do. So he missed a putt that would have won him because I believe he would have, he would have gotten a birdie on the 18th hole, um, missed that putt, and then had to settle for par, which is what got the score to be tied at the end of the eight, after uh, the end of the 18th hole and what is basically what led to playoff shots. And then Bryson DeChambeau, again, multiple times, had opportunities to put this guy away and he couldn't do it. He missed about four or five putts that would have won him this tournament had he made them. And like I said, Cantlay was extremely clutch, hit nice shot after nice shot. But the only reason... This went as far as it did was because Bryson DeChambeau could not deliver when it mattered most, and I know, like I said, this is me being a negative Nancy. This is me focusing on the negative, and maybe me being a pessimist. But dude, like, like how? Because you know what? Because you know what? Because here's the thing: if LeBron James or Kevin Durant Let's say, let's say there's an NBA game that went to like four overtimes. And let's say LeBron or Kevin Durant, game's tied up at the end of the fourth quarter, two seconds left. You know, LeBron has a chance to, to put the game away to win it. He shoots it, he misses. We go to overtime, same situation. At the end of uh, the first overtime, game's tied up, two seconds left, LeBron has a, or eight seconds left, LeBron has a chance to end the game. He misses again. We go to another overtime. Like, imagine if LeBron missed, like, four game winners in one game and then went on to lose that same game. People would absolutely crush him. It would be, I mean, this, now granted, granted, Bryson DeChambeau is definitely not the LeBron James of golf. Golf is not basketball. Not as many people care about golf. Bryson DeChambeau is not as big of a name. He's also not. Don't get me twisted. Bryson DeChambeau, incredible golfer, but he's not, like I said, the LeBron James of golfing, right? But still, I just, I just found it odd that so much of this coverage on it was, oh my goodness, Can'tley just kept hitting good putt after good putt, and he was he 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 was shooting the ball very well, and I'm just like are we not going to talk about Bryson DeChambeau just totally whiffing on five different shots that would have won him this tournament? But again, maybe that's just me. Maybe that's me being negative. Who knows? Uh, If if that is the case, you all let me know if I'm tripping, you all let me know if I'm being a pessimist, if, if I'm focusing on the negative, but I just feel like we're letting Bryson DeChambeau off a little easy here. Now, From one sport that we never talk about to another sport that we don't talk about too often, MLB. And I'm just going to be completely honest with you. The only time we really ever talk about baseball on this show is if there's something strange going on. And that's exactly what's happening uh, with the Mets right now. So... Everyone knows, I think everyone knows that the New York Mets have a pretty tumultuous um, relationship with their fans. Um, Mets fans do not hesitate to let the Mets know that they stink sometimes. Um, And granted, that comes with being in New York. New York is a very tough place. The media is tough. Fans don't really have a lot of patience um when it comes to their sports teams. They are used to, you know, seeing teams win. Well, so that's the funny thing is like I do think it's funny that like the fans of the Jets and the Mets, you know, like the the fans of the the B teams, right? Like in New York, it feels like they have two teams in every single sport, right? So like in New York there's two football teams, there's two basketball teams, there's two baseball teams. Now granted there's, and within those, you know, those sports between the two teams, there's one that's big brother. And then there's one that's little brother. Right. So like for New York, most New Yorkers will tell you they're giants fans, right? Being a jets fan jets are kind of like, yeah, you guys are second tier. You're the little brother. Right. But most people in New York are giants fans. Now, granted, The Jets are a little bit different because they're basically they're basically in New Jersey, which they should just be the New Jersey Jets, but whatever. Um, But the Jets are looked at as the B team, right, in basketball. New York, even though the Nets right now at the Barclays Center look great, they're absolutely the best team in New York right now, and even if they win a championship. I still think the Nets will always be, and granted, the Nets were at one point the New Jersey Nets, but with Brook, like with the Brooklyn Nets, they'll always be looked at as the B team in New York. You know why? Because ain't nobody ever overtaken the New York Knicks, the Garden, the Mecca. It's not gonna happen, right? With baseball, you know it's. It's the Yankees, you know, and then you have the Mets. And I say all that to say, even though these teams are the B teams, and even though these teams typically haven't really had a bunch of success, they're not really historic franchises or anything like that. It's always so funny to me that their fans bring that same level of vitriol and that same, those same I don't know if they're expectations, but they bring that same level that like the fans of the A-teams have where it's like, I don't know if they, like I said, I don't know if it's expectations or whatever, but basically what's been going on with the Mets is you have a couple players on the team, um, Most specifically, Javier Beitz, um, or not Bates. Hold on. Let me make sure. One second, because I thought I had his name written down, and of course I don't. Um, one moment. Javier Baez. Yes, Javier Baez. There we go. <laughs> Sorry about that. Javier Baez and a couple of the other New York Mets players have... I guess, had enough of some of the scolding from the fans. Um, And I've started taking to actually whenever they, you know, hit a home run, whenever they hit, you know, uh, maybe a double or something like that. And they get on base or as they're walking the bases, um, they've been throwing the thumbs down signs to to the fans, like directing it towards the fans. And Javi came out, Javier came out in one of the interviews, and was like, "Yeah, no, they boo us whenever we do something bad, so whenever we have some success we're gonna throw we're gonna throw the booze right back at them and I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what it was, and I mean, I thought that is a wild take. I've never seen. I don't like, I've never seen a player actively like boo or throw negative signs towards fans of their own team. You know, like I've seen guys play the villain and, you know, they play up to the hate that opposing teams' fans will give them. But for the players on the team that you are rooting for to basically saying, no, screw you. is wild it's insane and i have no idea i i will assume that this won't last for much longer they've been doing this for a couple of games now and granted they've received a lot of criticism for it which i understand uh they should receive criticism for it because this is just something you can't do um but i just that it's like I said. It was an it was it was a wild take, and just seeing it when it happens is insane. And but like I said, I, I I seriously doubt this is going to last much longer, especially with the owners, because I mean, this is something like you start going at the fans, and that's the type of stuff that'll make fans not come to games. And if fans aren't coming to games, guess what? That means tickets aren't being sold, concessions aren't being sold, food, alcoholic beverages. All of that stuff is not being sold. So now you as a player are actively basically taking money out of your out of the owner of the team's hands. And that is something that will not go unpunished. So I I doubt that this will last much longer. But I did think that it was a pretty it was a pretty wild move. It was a pretty wild move. Um from some of these Mets players. But like I said, I don't expect it to last too much longer. Um I actually believe uh Javier did come out and say, you know, you know, I we apologize. We know we, we thought maybe we there's definitely a way we could have done it better. Like he did kind of give somewhat of an apology, you know, if people were offended. But even still, just to see that on display of like I've never seen a a team be against its own fans. And that's basically what this situation has been. Um, But hey, that's New York, baby. (laughs) That's New York. Fans are crazy. Players are crazy. Media is crazy. New York is crazy. But uh, talk about the WNBA real quick. Shout out to the Chicago Sky for beating the Seattle Storm in back-to-back games. Candace Parker went absolutely insane uh the sky are actually now currently on a three-game win streak i believe um candace parker dropped like 25 and 9 and very surprisingly man the sky blew gave seattle the worst home loss of their franchise's history blew them out by like 32 points uh, i believe the final score was like one-zero. 10- what was it like 105 to, to 73 or something like that? I mean, it was an, I mean, it was a thorough beat down. Um, and, you know, it's moments like this that really are a little, it makes it a little sh- f- frustrating. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> um, when you watch the sky play, because there are certain times like, They'll go on this three-game win streak, beat the Seattle Storm in back-to-back games, but then just, what, maybe a week, week and a half ago, not too long ago, they lost to the Dallas Wings. And Dallas stinks. <laughs> like, it's frustrating the inconsistency that you get out of the Chicago Sky because the Sky, when you look at their lineup between Kalia Copper and between – um Candace Parker and Diamond DeShields and Allie Quigley, um, Courtney VanderSloot, Stephanie Dolson. Like this team is so like they have a lot of talent on this team. They should be much better than what their record indicates right now. Um, so it has been a very much an up and down season for the Chicago Sky. I hope this is a turning point um, for them to really kind of get things into gear. Um the season is coming to an end soon. We'll be at the playoffs before you know it. Um so we are hoping, at least I am. I'm hoping that this is a turning point for the guy, but Candace Parker played her played her behind off and if that's if that's how we're going to look for the rest of the season, good luck to everyone else keeping up. Now. Save this one. For last, because I probably will speak on this, not at length, but I'll I'll spend a pretty decent amount of time on this. The Logan Paul, Tyron Woodley fight. Well, first things first. Let's talk about the other undercards and things like that. There were some decent fights. Um. But the fight of the night easily. Montana Love versus Ivan Baranchik. This fight was incredible. I mean this fight was awesome. There were so many like that was a fight that was great for boxing. Like that fight right there was great for boxing. Damn Jake Paul and Tyrone Woodley. That was the fight of the night. So you had Montana Love, who's a Cleveland native, they're fighting in Cleveland, they're fighting there in Ohio. Montana Love also spent some time, uh, a good redemption story, was a guy who got off to a rough start in life, um, was in jail for you know some drug charges, came out, found boxing as an outlet, and is starting to really work his way into um, the boxing main stage. And you have Ivan Baranchik, who is a guy who is a former title holder, you know, like he's 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 been a belt holder before. He's won a championship before. So like these are two guys and Montana, obviously he's well into his career. So these are two guys who are not slouches by any means necessary. There were so many times where it looked like both of these guys got knocked out but were still standing i mean the first the first two rounds um they were both kind of feeling each other out, and Montana Love actually in the first two rounds i think absolutely owned those first two rounds. He absolutely won the first two rounds was moving around well, was really controlling the pace um Baranchik was trying to cut him off, but for the most part, Montana Love was striking, you know, and Baranchik couldn't touch, couldn't touch Montana for the first two rounds, right? He was swinging, he was missing. You could see that Baranchik was maybe getting a little frustrated. But then in the third round, maybe Montana got a little little tired, so he wasn't moving as quick, and then Baranchik found the range. And in that third round, Baranchik started to come at him. and I want to give the ref credit, because there were a couple of times where I was worried that the ref might come in and stop the fight, and he didn't, and he let the guys keep he let the guys keep battling, and so there's one where Montana is trying to get away and Branchit comes and I mean right hand catches him perfectly. And Montana falls and stumbles, doesn't go all the way to the ground. He kind of gets held up by the ropes, and then Baranchik just starts to try and tee off, right? And Montana is clearly in trouble. I was, I thought he was done. Like I thought, okay, he's going down. This is probably it right here. Like, but no, Montana is able to recoup, get himself back. You know, they kind of uh, get into a clinch, and Montana was able to kind of bring himself back. and get back into it. And then there's another point where Ivan was trying to get, uh, where Baranchik was trying to get Montana against the ropes. They clinch. The ref comes to break it up. And this was literally at the very end of the third round, where as they're being broken up, Montana throws a right that catches Baranchik, I mean clean on the chin. And Baranchik almost went down. Like it was a, I think it was, it was a punch that he wasn't expecting because the player, the fighters, not players, the fighters were supposed to be getting separated. And, you know, they kind of spoke like that's a miss. That's a miss on the ref because the ref has to make sure no one tries to take punch in that situation because guys are kind of letting their guard down. Now granted, there there will be people out there always protect yourself, man, whatever. When the ref is separating guys, that's supposed to be a moment where it's like, okay, hey, he's backing us, backing us up. No one throw a punch right here. Montana maybe because he was a little frustrated, did throw a punch in that situation. The ref did not see it. Or I, or I don't know if the ref didn't see it or, like I said, because they did kind of speak that this was only like the ref's fourth time. This is only his fourth uh, fight that he was refereeing. So a little bit of inexperience there. But Branchick gets clipped and he almost went down. His legs were a little wobbly. And then the round ends. And from round three to round seven, It was nothing but fireworks left and right. I mean, oh my God, multiple times. Baranchik was getting clocked and he was, his legs would go wobbly. Um, You, Montana would get clocked and you could see his eyes getting a little glazed over. And then what was, again, this was fight of the night, but it ended in such a terrible way. Seventh round. Montana Love uh is able to is able to dodge a left hand by um by Ivan Baranchik and he comes across with an uppercut, with a left uppercut that stonewalls Baranchik, and he drops into the seventh round. And granted, couldn't be saved by the bell. So Baranchik goes, he gets dropped, he he gets back up at like Seven or eight. You know, he's walking pretty good. Ref make sure he's fine. But mind you, at this point, like I said, these guys were getting basically knocked out, but they just weren't going down. This was like Baranchik's third or fourth time where he probably had been knocked out in this fight. And unfortunately, unfortunately, his corner and his trainer... Basically, called the fight. They threw in, they threw in the towel, and I understand why you want to do it for the the fighter's safety. Because, like I said, it was from round three to about five rounds, three, four, and five, they were going back and forth. Even six, they were really kind of trading blows back and forth. But in round seven, Montana definitely was the one who still had a little bit more stamina. You could kind of tell that Baranchik had maybe wore himself out because he was starting to try and go for those um, haymakers. Like he was trying to end the fight. And I think he did try to kind of wear himself out. He started not throwing punches as much, uh, wasn't moving as well. And I think his, his corner saw that, Hey, this is only going to get worse for you. Let's go ahead and get you out of this. They throw in the towel at the end of round seven. The fight was supposed to go 10 rounds, but man, that fight was electric there was one oh my goodness there was one punch that barancic landed i think it was at the end of the 5th the end of the 5th round barancic came across i think it was like a left overhand that caught montana love and i don't know how like it was a punch that looked like it should have decapitated him i don't know how he was still standing after he got hit with that and that one was at the end of round 6 or round 5 or 6 either way Ivan Baranchik versus Montana Love was an incredible fight. Um, I mean, that that was everything that people want to see when they go to a boxing match. Like that fight right there, outside of someone just getting cold cocked, just completely knocked out, and the ref just waves it off and like this is over, it had everything that you wanted. It had momentum shifts. It had you know, a little bit of, a little bit of showboating, you know, Montana love after one point where he really, where he really clocked branching and kind of had branching a little stumbled. He kind of threw his hands up, you know, playing to the crowd and stuff. Like there was some showmanship. There was, there was, there was violence. It was, like I said, momentum going back and forth. It was those huge moments of, Oh my gosh, is this it? Like that fight was awesome. So I, have to give credit to both of those young men. Ivan Baranchik, Montana Love, you all stole the show on Sunday night. Now let's talk about Jake Paul and Tyron Woodley. So I had this fight scored very close. Um however I will say I was I was actually surprised um that it was a split decision. Um, Jake Paul. Now, this fight did go all eight rounds, um, which I think for some people, it, that's a good that's a good sign for Jake Paul that it went eight or th- eight rounds because now it gave people an opportunity to really see if he could box. And Jake Paul can box like he is a legitimate boxer at this point. But. We're going to speak on that, on him being a legitimate boxer a little bit later. I want to give a little re- quick recap of the fight, and then I'm going to take, tell you the big takeaway um, from this fight that I had. But all in all, it was a, it was a very good fight. Um, we saw Jake Paul prove that he can last, that he has a little bit of stamina. Now, granted, he did get worn out um, in those middle rounds. Round four was really the turning point where Tyron Woodley in round 4 was the big moment of the fight where Jake Paul got knocked down but because he kind of was able to be held up by the ropes it didn't get counted as a knockdown I counted it as a knockdown um but Tyron Woodley came across and landed a beautiful left-handed now granted did kind of hit Jake Paul in the back of the head but it was the first time we saw Jake Paul really go down. Like, he got wobbly. He was glazed over. And it was it was frustrating to watch at times because Tyron Woodley, and this is just where the lack of experience showed, it's in those moments where you have to be aggressive. You know, like, Jake Paul was winning on the scorecard. And that's why I said I, Jake Paul ended up winning by split decision, which I was surprised that someone, one of the refs, had actually scored it that Tyron Woodley had won. Um, and then another judge actually scored it in a way where I think they only had Tyron Woodley winning one round or something like that. Like It was strange how some of the scoring variations came out. But the fact that it was a split decision was pretty interesting. I thought it would be a unanimous win for Jake Ball. However, um, both both looked well. I think both showed some good stuff. Um, They did kind of have a handshake moment in the ring um, that there will be a rematch. And there also actually is a rematch clause that was in the contract between these two. Um, So we might get Tyron Woodley versus Jake Paul, too. I would like to see it. Um, I thought the fight was pretty good, even though I think most people would have liked to have seen these one of these guys get knocked out. Right. That's that's I mean, that's essentially that. I mean, let's just be honest. That's what we all want to see. In boxing. No one wants the fight to go the distance. No one wants the fight to be stopped by a ref. No one wants no, we want to see somebody get knocked out. Right? That's 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 what we're here for. Um But Jake Paul showed, like I said, he did get a little winded and that and that showed really after the third round. In that fourth round, you could see, and that's why I think Tyron Woodley was start when he laid that hit. Um, it took some more out of Jake. And Jake really Rounds I'd say probably rounds four, five and six um rounds four, five, and about halfway in the first half of round six um you could tell that he was fatigued, and you could tell that he was like okay this like the this is his first time going deep into a fight like this, and you could tell that like the stamina was uh was depleting. But then to his credit, he did find a second wind. Um, Like I said, halfway through that sixth round, started moving a little bit better, Um, was able to keep his hands up. Um, But I thought the fight was really good. I thought it was really close. Um, But I say all that to bring up this point. And obviously, like I said, Jake Paul won by split decision. But I say all that to bring this up. Jake Paul. Now granted, I do want to see Jake Paul fight Tyron Woodley again. Um That being said, Jake Paul is a legitimate boxer. He is someone who, yes, I think it's he's he's been training at this for about three, four years now. This was his fifth fight, I believe. Um Fifth or fourth, something like that. But yeah, fifth fight, fifth fight, because he had he had the three kind of spectacle fights. He had one amateur fight, and then this was another spectacle fight against Tyron Woodley. So this was his fifth fight. Um, Only the fourth that officially goes on his record. But I want to say this. Jake Paul, you are a legitimate boxer. It's time you start fighting other legitimate boxers. It's just that simple. My biggest takeaway from this, because one of the things that I did see was Tyron Woodley never looked wobbly. He got hit with some stuff too. Jake landed some shots. Tyron Woodley never looked hurt in this fight. There were some times where Jake looked like it was the beginning of the end when Tyron Woodley hit him a couple times. So I learned that, okay, Jake Paul couldn't hurt a 40 year old Tyron Woodley. Also, the only reason Jake Paul won this fight was because of Tyron Woodley, who uh, again, Tyron Woodley, granted, is a guy who is a legend in combat sports. In the MMA world and in the UFC world, but this was his first time in a boxing ring. This was his boxing debut. And granted, Tyron Woodley has a lot of power. He's always been known as a striker in the UFC, so this was a little bit more of a challenge for Jake, and it showed. But the biggest takeaway from this fight for me was Jake Paul, while he is a legitimate boxer, Jake Paul will probably never amount to much of anything in a real boxing setting and what do I mean by that Jake Paul is prof- is a legitimate enough and if you want to call him a professional boxer you can but Jake Paul is a legitimate enough boxer where if he gets in the ring with anyone who is not a current, professional experienced boxer he's going to win right it's a guarantee if he keeps on getting in guy getting in the ring with guys who aren't legitimate fighters who guys who are I don't want to say aren't legitimate fighters but aren't legitimate boxers guys who are you know former UFC fighters or something like that or other celebrity that's not like he's going to win those however This fight against Tyron Woodley showed me if he gets in the ring with anyone who's a current professional experienced boxer, he's going to get knocked the hell out. He, and like I said, you have to give him credit because he has come a long way. But I don't think he's legitimate in the sense that He will ever have a real career in boxing. Like. And I'm only throwing out top tier names because those are the names that will be easily recognizable. Jake Paul ain't winning a fight against Javante Davis. In all honesty. That fight ain't going past two rounds. Jake Paul isn't winning a fight against. Again, this is one of the guys that he's called out actually. Canelo Alvarez. Canelo Alvarez would kill Jake Paul in, in a boxing match straight up, like not even being funny, not even joking. He would get killed by Canelo Alvarez. He's not beating someone like triple G. He's not beating someone like Showtime, Sean Porter. He's not beating someone like Terrence Crawford. Um, you know, like a Tyson Fury, like a Deontay Wilder. He has no shot against anyone. Of that caliber. And I think this charade and all of this stuff will go on a little bit longer until he actually does finally step into the ring with someone who is of that ilk and they really show him what it means to be a real boxer, what it means to be a professional. Um, like I said, I, I give him credit for how far he, along he has come. But the truth is, he's never going to be someone who's going to com- contend for a belt. Now, he'll be someone who sells a lot of tickets. He'll be someone who's great for spectacle. And hell, I even think he is good for boxing because guess what? When he puts on these fights, the undercards typically are real boxers. Prime example, Ivan Baranchik versus Montana Love. A lot of people are going to follow Montana Love because of his performance in this fight. Because he was on this card. Like this might get Montana Love. You know, Montana spoke about this after the fight. He said, you know, strap me up. I want a belt. I'm coming for the top. He might get that opportunity now because of all the eyes that were seen on him. And now everyone knows what he can do. So, I think in a way, yes, Jake Paul is good for boxing. But will he ever be a premier boxer on a real scale? No. But for the time being, I guess I'll enjoy the shenanigans and pay loose attention. Like I said, I don't want to give Jake Paul or the Paul brothers too much uh, coverage on this show, but I thought. I thought Jake Paul was worthy of some praise from based off of his uh his performance in that fight, as well as Tyron Woodley. Like I said, if Tyron Woodley had Tyron Woodley been a more experienced uh, fighter and had he been more aggressive, he would have won this fight. I had this fight what I think I there were eight rounds. I think three of them I had Tyron Woodley winning, but one of the rounds, like I said, round four, the round where he knocked down Jake Paul, I had it scored ten to eight instead of ten to nine. Um, so in my, when I was keeping score and how I scored it, I had Jake Paul winning, but it was only by one point. I think it was like 76 to 75, something like that, when I scored it. So it was a very close fight. I do hope that they go through with the, uh, with the rematch because I think that that would be a lot of fun. Um, I think it would be nice to see how, Both of them um, react to a second fight because now Jake Paul knows that he can go eight rounds. Jake Paul now kind of has a better understanding of what Tyron Woodley can do, but also how much better will Tyron Woodley be from his first fight to his second? You know, all of those type of things. So I hope they do the second fight, but we shall see. Um... Logan Paul, you know they it seemed like they were trying to walk it back, and like they were like, "Oh, your old news, we're gonna move on to something else, but then, like I said, they had that moment between Tyron Woodley and Jake Paul, where they shook hands, you know, and they they agreed, they said, "Hey, you know, like we'll shake on it, you know, that's a bet we'll we'll fight again, so we'll see, we'll see, but I've had you here for about an hour, I think that's a long enough time, so I'll let you guys go ahead and get on out of here. Thank you all." so much for listening this has been the instant replay podcast brought to you by dominic Shirosky. and like i said thank you for listening if you like today's episode tell a friend to tell a friend all that other good stuff like it share it um if you didn't like today's episode just act like it didn't happen and of course i have to leave you all with a quote kobe bryant once said no one hates the good ones they only hate the greats so with that being said make sure you guys go out. Um, Make some new haters, man. And I will see you all. Oh, I guess quick update I don't have COVID anymore. So, yes, (laughs) I forgot to throw that in at the beginning. I am COVID free, uh, feeling healthy, feeling good. Thank you for all the well wishes. Um, With that being said, thank you for listening. I'll see you all on Friday. Peace. It's just different.